And good morning. Uh, I was a little afraid this morning that everybody was going to be freezing. We got a message last night that one of the heaters wasn't going to be working, and so we were a little nervous, a little afraid that we were going to be icicled up this morning. But yeah, so we're good, I think. So just keep your coats on, and you should be fine. Um, man, it's good to be here. I, I am surprised. We, we took a, a, a little group to uh, Winter Jam on Friday night, and I haven't been to Winter Jam. I don't even know if you know Winter Jam is, but Winter Jam is like this collection of Christian musicians, and it's been going since I was a teenager, which we're not going to do the math, but that was a long time ago. And there were some bands that, like, I, I was the old guy that we took, like, a whole bottle of earplugs, and we were passing them out to people because we were like, you need these, you need these, you need these. And they were like, no, we don't. We're like, yes, you do. And I still think I probably left blood on my, my pillow by Saturday morning. But it was good. It was good. So if you got to come out with us, thanks, Michael. I know you brought some of the boys out, and Berkeley was there, and, and we had some other friends that came out too. But, man, it was something if you haven't been to that. And there was this band, Skillet, which from, like, I mean, like old school, Skillet, and uh, if you've been in the church for a while or in youth group back in the day where you ate pizza and stayed up all night long, you probably listened to Skillet. And uh, I don't know how those dudes at their age did what they did. Like, that's not a knock against age, but, man, they were just, good gracious, they were melting your face off and uh, just still doing it. So pretty impressive to watch. But we're glad to be here this morning. Uh, we've got just a few more weeks here in the Old Cigar Warehouse. On April the 3rd, we will be starting our time at Zen, which is literally right across the tracks. Uh, so make sure you make note of that. And I think Zach did mention that Origins 101 will be that Sunday, so it'll be a, a busy one. We'll have breakfast together, uh, we'll worship together, and then right after worship, we'll head over to Casa de Elrod, which is our house, and uh, we'll have Origins 101. So if you're interested in, in what it means to like be a member with Origins and who we are, how we got here, or if you just want more information, or just free lunch, like if you just want free lunch, you know, that's a good place to be. Um, now, if we see covenant members that are there eating free lunch, we're going to ask you to either speak or go away. Uh, but the rest of you, you're more than welcome to come out and join us. So um, if you want any more information about that, just uh, talk to me afterwards and we'll give you some mo. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 6 today. Uh, we took a break last week. If you weren't here last week, sorry, you couldn't listen to the message online. We had a little technical difficulty. Um, but hopefully this week it won't matter to you who is here. But if you're listening later, uh, just be grateful for technology. You can, you can tune in. A um, couple weeks ago, we were in Mark, and we were looking at Jairus, which was a, a temple, temple leader, a, a ruler of the synagogue, and then there was this nameless woman. And today's story is kind of a continuation of that, uh, just this idea of like what he told that woman in the end. If you missed it, you can go back and listen to that one. But there were some amazing things that happened there, and they happened as a result of uh, belief, or what we call scripturally faith. Uh, they're trusting in Jesus and only Jesus to do what only Jesus could do, and he did. And so today, uh, there's two things that the passage we're going to look at is going to do. One, it's going to continue to inform us about the mission of Jesus and how that worked, specifically regarding faith, but also it's going to serve as kind of a, a caution to a degree. I think this passage has been taken out of context by a lot of people um, and, and it's turned it into a stop sign instead of just a caution. And so today we want to make sure that we're looking at it as like, hey, uh, there's something hard ahead. We want you to be aware of it, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. And so uh, we're going to jump into that. But I'm going to pray and uh, we're going to read Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6 and talk about that for a bit today. God, we love you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you uh, for being a God who cares enough about his kids uh, to not leave us as we are. Thank you that you love us as we are, but you love us enough to, to make us look more and more like Jesus. You do that through your word. You do that through your spirit's interaction with us. You do that through your spirit's interaction with our family. Um, and God, thank you for being that kind of dad. Uh, God, today we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it says and who it's trying to make us to be. And God, we thank you for the example that we find in Jesus. 
Uh, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So chapter 6, verse 1. And so it says, He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this, is this not the carpenter, or the son of the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joses, or Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not these his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. So where we ended a couple weeks ago in this series, like I said, we took a break last week, but a couple weeks ago we ended with uh, Jesus meeting this guy named Jairus, and, we meet, and he also met this woman whose name we don't know. They both had an issue. Like the man, his daughter was dying, uh, and he believed that if he went to Jesus and just Jesus, he had one chance, go to Jesus, and if he believed that Jesus could do what only Jesus could do, his daughter would be okay. In the middle of that, his daughter actually died, and, and the man's heart probably bursted, but Jesus said, do not be afraid, just believe. Same ideas, have faith, trust in me. And then we had this other woman who in the very middle of all of this, almost like an interruption, but it was actually an opportunity, uh, this woman had been um, bleeding for 12 years. I see some, some young faces in here, so we'll leave it at that. Um, and she had been bleeding for 12 years, and she said, I've heard what Jesus has done. Uh, that hearing had created faith in her enough to believe that if she just touched his garments, the hem of his garments, the bottom that dragged the dirt, if I just do that, I believe that I'll be made well. And she was. And the exchange that happened with her at the end of that, after Jesus perceiving that power had gone out, uh, he looked around, said, power's gone out, who touched me? And he finally found the woman. She was cowering there, scared and in awe. And, and he turns to her and he says, your faith or your trust in me and only me has made you well. Be healed of your disease. Go in peace. And so in that specific place, we see people that are demonstrating, like we talked about, the, probably the greatest illustration that we have of faith being lived out, belief in Jesus and only Jesus to do miraculous things. Um, and in this particular passage, we almost see, or we do see, like the contrast to that. Uh, we see the fact that people didn't believe what Jesus could do. Even though they had heard about it, even though they had seen it, they didn't. And we want to talk about what that looked like and why that was. But just to kind of summarize, Jesus is going to his hometown. Born in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth, and so he went southwest from where he was previous just to Nazareth. And he didn't go there for a home visit. He didn't go there to stop in to see mom and the brothers and the sisters. No, he went there to actually go to the synagogue on the Sabbath, as was his habit, to be like a, a visiting rabbi or an itinerant speaker to come in and teach at the synagogue on that particular day. But when he goes in to teach at the synagogue, there are a ton of familiar faces there. There are the people that he grew up with, the people that maybe he played baseball with in the backyard. They didn't do that back then, by the way. But, you know, something similar, whatever it would have been, the people that grew up with him, they knew his dad, they knew his mom, they knew the siblings, they knew all those people, they knew who he was. And they looked at him, they were like, who, who is this? Like, this is the carpenter, right? This is the carpenter's son. This is the son of, of Mary, the brother to, to Joseph and Judas and James. Uh, we know a few of those names, like Judas, actually Jude, the, wrote the book of Jude. They translate it so it's not Judas, because that brings negative connotations for some reason. Um, and then we have James. He wrote the book of James. was very influential in, in the early church. Uh, and then we have a few other siblings and sisters. And so they're like, we know this guy. We know this guy. 
And so they're, they're looking at him, and, and also the disciples are with him because he's, again, he's discipling them, he's training them, he's teaching them. This is a part of that for them. And he goes to his hometown, teaches in the synagogue, and people are just, they're all struck in a different way. They're just, it says some are astonished. The word right there literally means like they're blown away, they're amazed, they're astonished. But then it says that others, like the, the Greek word is actually going to be like they were repelled, like they were bothered to such a degree that it pushed them away. They wanted to leave. They were repelled, repulsed would be a good word. And so it, it kind of brings up the question, like, what, what is that? Why is that? What, what is going on here? I think it's interesting to see their questions that they actually phrase, starting in verse 2, and it says, And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, and saying, Where did, the, where did he or where did, uh, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of these, the, you know, and then the sisters? And they took offense at him like they were basically asking, how did he get this? And so, and then there's an exchange that he has with them. And, and he basically uh, quotes kind of a proverb that would have been popular at that day. It wasn't necessarily a biblical proverb, but it was a proverb that people would have known, Greek and Hebrew alike. And he basically just says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. He says he could do mo- no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. So after their exchange, after they were just like, who is this guy? Where did he get these things? We don't understand. Isn't he the kid that we watched grow up, we grew up with? You know, we, we, we did this stuff with. Like, how, how is he doing this? And they were just repulsed. And then he said, you know, everywhere else that I go, people listen except here. And it says he could do no mighty works there, which is funny. Like, there's a little bit of a contrast here and a contradiction. Like, he could do no mighty works there except he laid his hands on a few people and healed them of their diseases and their sicknesses. Pretty neat. We'll get to that in a minute. And it says Jesus marveled. He marveled because of their lack of belief. Their lack of belief. I think the the tendency with this passage and the the context of it and everything that we see going on, a lot of people have taken this to mean um, don't even try with your family. Like, go ahead and put the stop sign up, because if Jesus went to his family, his hometown, and he couldn't minister to them, he couldn't actually share truth with them, they wouldn't take it. You you probably shouldn't try either, because you're not Jesus. And that's not not what we need to draw from this passage. That's not what we need to draw. Like, we need to to think well about this passage. That's not the thing. Uh, What we actually want to do is we want to look at it as almost like, um, like that caution light that flashes. That's not the one that means you speed up, but it means that something's up ahead, you know, we've tried to, to teach our kids that when you see the yellow light, it doesn't mean that you speed up, but that's probably what we do. But, but this is the other one, the one that's flashing before you have a, a steep curve or a road hazard or something like that. It's like, look, you're about to go through something, um, and you're going to go through it, but you, you need to know that it's, it's probably going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. And so Jesus goes to his hometown. He encounters these people, um, and they are uh, scandalizo. They are repelled by him and what he's doing. And, and I think it kind of brings the question as to, to why. Why was this? Well, for them, like, they grew up with Jesus, and it's not that Jesus was a bad kid. Like, to be honest, like, sin never entered Jesus. Because if it had, like, he would not have been able to die and be the perfect sacrifice that he was. He wouldn't have been able to be the unblemished lamb. So Jesus, by all regards, he was the good kid. He was the best kid. Now, does that mean that, that he didn't cry? Probably not. He did, because babies do that, or so I've heard. You know, we have perfect children. Ours never cried. But 
uh, yeah, I've heard that cry. That's not true. Um, anyway, you know that's not true, hopefully. But either way, like he was, he was the good kid. So it wasn't that they were looking at him and trying to say, he used to be bad and now he's good. How did that happen? It was, it was something different. They were looking at Jesus and they were like, look, I, I knew that you grew up as a carpenter's son. And, and in their cultural standards, what a carpenter's son would do when he grew up is he would be a carpenter. And Jesus was. Like, even in the book of Mark, they said, isn't this the carpenter, Jesus? In the book of Matthew, it says carpenter's son. But either way, they were both true. Like, they're looking at him, and they're like, how is he speaking with authority? How has he done the things that he has done? Where did he get these things? Because he's just a carpenter. At any point, like, if he, did, if he had left the house when he was 11 to go to rabbinical school or even earlier, maybe they could have believed it, but he didn't do that. He was a good kid, stayed, and, and was a good son, was a good brother, um, but they look at him and they're like, where did he get these things? Where did they come from? And probably what was at the root of it, what was at the root of their repulsion for him and, and their disbelief that he could say these things, teach with this way, and do these miracles that he did, is most likely at the core of them. They were looking at him and they were saying, we don't understand because we know he was just like us. We came from the same place. We did a lot of the same things. We grew up on the same street. How is it that he can say these things but maybe not us. They weren't getting it. Now, obviously, Jesus was different. Jesus was God with skin on. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary uh, by the very miraculous nature of God, and, and Joseph was basically his adopted father and raised him as his own son. Uh, and so they looked at him with good questions, like how is it that he can say these things, do these things, yet we can't to a degree? And so a lot of times, again, people read this and, and they look at Jesus' proclamation of a prophet is without honor, or is, you know, is not without honor except in his hometown, like amongst his own people. So if Jesus can't do it, why, why can't we? But then it does say, and he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, marveled at their unbelief. I think for us, like, there's a couple things that, that we need to do and, and understand. Like, I think we need to, to understand why it was difficult uh, for these people to actually look at Jesus and, and believe what he was saying because he was. He did grow up with them. He did grow up in the same manner. Maybe he was the good kid, the best kid, like because of all, you know, and all, you know, understanding, like he was the best baby that ever existed. He was the best son that ever existed, the best brother that ever existed because he wasn't clouded by sin. Sin didn't perpetuate in his life. Sin didn't cause him to dishonor his mother and father or slap his brother and sister, get angry and throat punch him. It, it didn't happen because he was without sin. And so, again, we, we do want to look and try to understand their difficulty, but at the same time, we need to ask the question, um, what does this mean for me? When we read Scripture, we want to understand what's going on in the moment and to whom it was written to and why it was written, what was going on, the immediate context. But then we have to ask the question, what does this mean eternally or what does it mean for me 2,000 years later? What does this say for me? Well, a couple things. I think the first is we have to acknowledge um, that going and ministering to our families at home, the people that know us best, can be and probably will be very difficult can be and probably will be very difficult. I mean, if we had a raise of hands, like those of you who follow Jesus and came from a home in which your family does not, and we ask you, is it easy to go home around your dinner table and talk about what Christ has done in your life? Most of you would say no. It's not easy. 
it is very difficult because these people did grow up with you. They did see you. They do know you best. You know them best. And so sometimes even broaching that subject is very difficult. So I think it's okay for us to acknowledge that this exchange within family at home, wherever that may be, uh, can be hard. Can be hard. Like we need to acknowledge, yes, it's going to be difficult. But the second thing that we need to acknowledge um, at the same time is that it's necessary. It's necessary. Because on one hand, they know you best, you know them best. That makes it very difficult for you to speak with authority in their life about the goodness, the good things that God has done in you. Um, At the same time, it also makes you the most qualified person to speak truth into their life. They know you best, you know them best. They know you're good, you're bad, you're ugly. You know they're good, they're bad, they're ugly. You know all of those things. And so while, yes, it makes it most difficult, it also makes us singularly the most qualified person to speak truth into their lives. So we acknowledge, yes, it's difficult, but secondly to that, and simultaneously, we acknowledge that it's completely necessary. Because here's the the acknowledgement in that idea. Um, Not only did Christ die for you, for you to have a shot at hope, if you just believe, he, he also died for your family so that they could believe. So that they could believe. And if you, if I am the singular most qualified person to speak to them with the truth of my story that God has changed my life and it's necessary for them to hear this so that faith can grow, so that they can respond and actually call on Jesus as Lord, we have to understand it's necessary that we speak even though it's difficult. Like this passage is not a stop sign telling us not to go. It is, it's a flashing caution sign to say we must go but understand it, it's probably going to be hard. It's probably going to be difficult. Now, I kind of speak of this hypothetically to a degree because I I must admit, like, um, God was very gracious with the family that he gave me. Like, my my parents were believers, still are, and my my siblings are, and and I grew up in a home in which Christ was spoken about frequently, you know, and it was modeled for us. Now, were there some things they did wrong? Absolutely. Like, I've I've spoken of it frequently, and if my mom's listening, it's okay for me to say my mom's crazy. Um, and in the best ways and in some crazy ways too. Like ask my wife, she will tell you and she won't say anything bad, of course, because she's a great daughter-in-law, but they didn't do everything perfectly, but they, they modeled Jesus for us because they loved Jesus and they wanted their kids to love Jesus. And so for me to think about going home and sharing the gospel with my family, it's kind of a moot point because they know Christ, but I still have to go home and I still have to model the behaviors of Christ to actually hope that they will grow in their maturity to Jesus even though I'm a son and they're the parents. Or even though my siblings are older, which is crazy. Triplet siblings above me like to, to model Christ to them so that uh, they can see Christ and see what it looks like to follow Christ on a regular, consistent, sacrificial basis. Like I still have to do that. And there are still times in which conversations come up. Like I've had amazingly difficult conversations with my siblings about what does it mean to follow Jesus and how we do that best. How do we raise our kids and why do we make the choices that we make. And I have to acknowledge that every one of those conversations is difficult. It's awkward. It's sticky. It's not normal. I could go to a stranger easily, much easier, and talk to them about what Christ has done in me far easier than I could go to one of my family members. Because, again, we acknowledge it's hard. It's sticky because they know everything about me. They, they know all the good, all the bad, all that stuff. They watched it. Most likely we got into the same trouble together at the same time, and either we lied to our parents about it or we got busted. Either way, like they saw that. They knew that. They were there. And they probably caused it because they're the older siblings, and it was never my fault. I mean, every time we got a vehicle stuck in the mud when we weren't supposed to be driving a vehicle because we didn't have driver's license yet, it was probably Jonathan's fault. 
And if anybody knows that brother, you can agree. Yeah, it's probably his fault. But they know me. I know them. Sticky, difficult. But for you, like to acknowledge, like you have people back at home, wherever that home looks like, you're following Christ, they are not. Yes, it is okay to say that conversation scares the mess out of me. And it should, because it's a weird one. It's an odd one, but it's entirely necessary. Because again, you are singularly probably the most qualified person to share what Christ has done in your life and what he can do in theirs. Because again, just like these people looking at Jesus grew up on the same street, same neighborhood, same families, same temple, same all of those things, with the people that are at your home, probably very similar, very similar, sticky, difficult conversations, uh, but entirely necessary. And so admitting those two things right up front, I think we need to ask, like, what, what do we do with that? Like, if it was hard for Jesus, like, and admit it, it was, like, Jesus was astonished, Like, I mean, most of the time, like, he's been astonished at other things, and if we look at Philippians chapter 2, we see that Jesus canoe over, let loose of certain parts of his divinity willingly so that he could come, live, die on our behalf, and that was, that's a huge theological idea and crazy. Sometimes there were things that he willingly chose not to know, which will wreck your brain. If you think of the foreknowledge and the sovereignty of God, that he could look forward and actually see there are some things that it's better that I not know in the moment so that my father will get the most glory. He did that, and this was one of those situations. Because he went in, and it says that he was surprised. He was astonished at their lack of faith. If Jesus goes into a situation where he knows everyone and they know him, and he's blown away by the fact that they can't believe what he's saying, like when we go home, it shouldn't catch us off guard either. We should be prepared. It's going to be hard. And so there are things that we necessarily need in order to go to those situations. If we admit, A, it's going to be hard, and B, it's entirely necessary, and we're qualified to do it. The first thing that we need, what is required, is we actually need God to go before us into those conversations. Like, believe it or not, if we are seeking salvation for someone, uh, we actually need God to go in there before we do. And I know that sounds like an oxymoron kind of a statement or just kind of a dust statement, but it it bears repeating. We must understand and we must acknowledge frequently that I can't save a single person. Not my mother, not my brother, not my sister, not my cousins, not my aunts, not my uncles. I can't save anybody. God can. And if we desire to see their salvation, uh, we need to ask him to go before us before we ever have that sticky, weird conversation after eating a turkey leg at Thanksgiving or whatever. We need to pray. And, and it's very specific, like, hey, uh, God, I'm, I'm going home next week. I'm scared to death, but I know that person X does not know you, and I want to love them well, and I want to be able to share the gospel with them. Would you, would you start to work before I even get there? Like, God wants the specificity of our prayers in that nature because, again, it's reflecting his heart. It's reflecting that our heart is aligned with his. He, he desires that none should perish, that all should come to know him. And if we are going home with an effort to see them come to know Christ, then we stop before we go and we say, God, would you please go before me and work on them well before I get there? And God is faithful. He does that. I mean, I, I, could, list, I could list the people in my life that I prayed for salvation on their behalf, that God would go before I ever said a word and to see him work in that to give me words in that moment, to allow them to hear the words in that moment, to allow them to confess Jesus as Lord in that moment, not because I did anything great, but because God is capable and able to perform miracles, whether it's a bleeding woman or whether it's a dead child or whether it's someone that's a stranger and alien to God because of sin. God can do that, and we need to believe that he can to the point that we pray that he will before we ever go. Because it's important, it's necessary. 
the hope that we've experienced that gives us new life, that hope also rests for those people in our home, where we go back to, where we came from. It exists for them, but it must be spoken, and we get to speak it. And so, yes, before we go, we pray, God, please go before me. Please go, like, and that literally, that's not like this abstract idea. That literally means you get there before I do, and you begin to work on their heart that needs to be renewed before I say a word, before I show up. Would you go before me? And trust that he will. So we invite God into the process that only he can do, and we trust him with the results. That's the first thing that's required. The second thing that's required, and this is a big one, especially when we go home, And Jesus did not have to demonstrate it in this moment, but he did because of who he was. Uh, The second thing that's required after we invite God into it is humility, like big humility, like monstrous humility. Because the people that we want to get cheeky with the most, like, is probably those people. Like, the people that I want to shake in my life the most, and their family and their grown-ups, and I'm allowed to do that because they're my brothers and we wrestled for half our life, the people that I want to do that with the most are my family. Like, I just want to grab them and shake them. And I hope that's okay. But, I mean, we're brothers, and we wrestled, and we put holes in sheetrock half our life, so we did more than shake. But that, in, in that case, I'm not going to shake anybody else, but just my brothers. I just want to grab them and shake them sometimes because I know them well. They know me well, and, and they probably can frustrate me the most. And so w- when we go home, we pray that God will do it, but we also pray, God, give me a, a heart that just, man, displays humility at every single turn because without it, if we go in with a superior attitude or with a place of, of just expertise in an area, they're, they're probably not going to listen. And this applies to most of life, but especially to the place where we know them best, they know us best. We go in with humility. And we also have to understand that uh, I think this builds into our humility that, that this conversation is probably going to be hard for them too. It's going to be It's not just awkward for me, the one speaking, but it's also awkward for the hearer. Like if, if you think, like as a child, like as a child, even though you're an adult child now, if you've ever had to go to your parents and, and this, is, this is difficult, but at some point, um, there's probably been a time, if you still have a relationship with your parents, that you've had to go to your parents and not necessarily rebuke them. You're still honoring them as your father and your mother as though we're commanded. Of course you're doing that, but maybe you have to call them out on something they did wrong. Man, yeah, that's hard for you, but I can guarantee as a parent hearing it from a child, that's incredibly hard for them. And so that should grow in our humility to know that we need to go in meekness, that we need to go as a servant, we need to go in low and not go in with a superior attitude in a place of just like, I'm just going to smack you. No, we need to go in and say, I want to serve you. It's hard for you, hard for them. It should breed our humility. And, And again, like thinking about that idea of honoring our fathers and mothers, how do we go to our fathers and mothers if they do not know Jesus and and speak to them as someone that wants to offer them life-giving hope if we don't do it in humility? We can't. We can't. I call those Waffle House conversations with my dad because I feel like that's where we've had our best conversations is at Waffle House. You know, like he'll always order like the Grand Slam breakfast or whatever the equivalent is of that at Waffle House. I don't because I always order a grilled chicken sandwich at Waffle House because it's the best thing on the menu. Um, but my dad wants eggs, bacon, and hash browns, that kind of thing. But, but either way, over that, and with both a cup of coffee, not great coffee, but good enough, like I feel like those are the best conversations that I've ever had with my dad over Waffle House for some reason. Hard for me, hard for him. Sometimes it's good for both, but those, there are just times where it's just difficult. But it has to start with humility. Because also in this moment, like for these folks, the reason they were looking at Jesus with such great disbelief and also 
repugnation of just wanting to go away is because they were having to examine themselves and they were having to ask, how can he say these things if we grew up the same way? How can he do these things if we grew up the same way, but I'm still here stuck? Those conversations also recall, they, they, they make us examine what's going on, but they also cause them to examine themselves. And that's never easy either. So again, go in as a servant. Colossians 4, 5, and 6, which we'll, we'll toss up here. This was, man, this one popped up in just one of my personal quiet times this week. And uh, it just says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of your time. Let your speech always be gracious, gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer to each person. And while outsiders here is in reference to those outside of the faith, it could very well be people that are insiders to your family. And it means that when we go and speak with them, we speak well. We speak wisely. We want our words to add to them, not detract from them, seasoned with salt. Salt is an additive that makes things better. We want to go to them with wisdom. We go to them with humility. Maybe one of the things that, that we may need to do when we go to family is the, the opener to that conversation is we may need to seek forgiveness. Again, really hard. But, but again, go back. Think, imagine you do have two unbelieving parents. And you were a terrible kid. I don't know. None of you. That, probably none of you. That, none of you were that. But just imagine for a minute that you were. You have non-believer parents. You now follow Jesus. You were a terrible kid. Maybe the very first thing that you do when you go to your parents with hope of them hearing the redemptive power of Jesus through the gospel is you start with, I am sorry for being such a terrible kid. Maybe you seek their forgiveness. And maybe you've never done it. Maybe you've said, I'm sorry that I got busted. I'm sorry that I wrecked your car, that sweet Dodge Omni, you know, hypothetically speaking. I didn't do it. My brother did, once again. Not me, him. But maybe you start with, hey, I'm sorry, would you forgive me? Again, humility, putting yourself beneath them and actually seeking their forgiveness. Maybe you need to start with that. If you've got a brother or a sister and you were a terrible sibling and now you know Jesus, they do not, and they saw all of your bad, maybe you go to them and you seek forgiveness. An aunt, an uncle, it doesn't matter. Maybe that humility beckons that you go to them and you're, you're trying to use your words wisely, make the best of your time. Maybe you start with, I'm sorry. I wanted to let you know that all those things that I did, I, I should not have done, and now I see that I, I was wrong. I'm sorry. So we go with humility. Hard for them, hard for us. Sticky conversations. And here's the third thing that, that is required. We, we go to God. We go with humility. The third thing is likely, hopefully, uh, we go with an understanding that it's probably going to take time. It's probably not going to happen over one holiday weekend. You live here. They live in Nevada. You go in for one weekend. Probably not. It, it may not happen. Now, it could because God does miraculous things. He could do it in a moment. But through the course of relationship where we see life change really occur a majority of the time, very often it may take time. Because what you've done through a life of sin, very likely, is you've actually torn down bridges, you've burned them, and it takes much longer to rebuild a bridge than it does build it in the first place. So you've torn them down, you've got to clear the rubble away, you've got to make apologies, you've got to make amends, and then brick by brick, layer by layer, you rebuild a bridge so that you can get to that place of actually sharing hope with them. It's going to take time. It may take time. Because I know that probably, and we've heard of this within this family, like people have been radically changed by Christ. They go back to their family who have seen them live a terribly different life, and they don't believe that it's real. They think it's, they think it's a fake. They're like, no, this is going to wear off. This isn't real. I don't believe this change that I see in you. 
Like, I know you can tell me about it all that you want. I know that you can talk about your church family all that you want, all the good stuff that you've done, but I don't buy it because I know where you were when you were 16, 18, 22. And so again, time. It's going to take time. It's going to take consistency. It's going to take, like, intentionality, not to speak of all the goodness that you are, but just to celebrate Jesus and what he does. Time. Repeated opportunities. And sometimes it may mean that if your hope for them is salvation, it may mean you have to choose to go home every now and then instead of going on vacation. You have vacation time, you want to celebrate in the Bahamas, that's great. But maybe, and and I know I'm stepping on some plans here, but maybe your family needs Jesus. So you take that week that you have off and you go spend with them and have awkward conversations in the hope that God's going to use it and radically change their life. Because again, if we believe that the gospel is what it says that it is, it's our only chance at hope, it's our only opportunity to be made known to God and to actually know him and to be united with him through eternity, man, what better way to spend a vacation than sharing the truth and the hope of Jesus with people that need it? And I know you're like, man, you're, you're imposing on my freedoms right now. No, 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 I'm informing you of our freedoms that we get to speak freely about Christ. That's, that's a freedom. It's one of the things that we have been saved into and out of. It's going to take time. And it may take time for them to get to know who you are now instead of who you used to be. Corinthians tells us that for now, you, if any of us who knows Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, look, it's out of here. The new has come. Maybe for them to believe that you are authentically who you say you are and to actually see that you're new, they're just going to have to see it for a while. Pray that God will use it. Pray that God will honor it. Pray that God will just, man, do something amazing with it. It's going to take time. The third thing is we have to acknowledge the advantage in this situation that we have over Jesus. And you're like, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We actually have an advantage over Jesus in this situation. Because here's the advantage. The greatest proof of Jesus ever, the greatest proof of Jesus ever will be a changed life. The greatest proof, and I say that often, I'll say it loud, the greatest proof of Jesus ever and for all time will always be a changed life. Jesus' life, to be honest, like was consistent. He had never sinned. He had never done wrong. He was perfect. If he had not been perfect, he could not be the sacrifice that, he ne- that we needed, and he was. Us, on the other hand, we're not perfect. Some of us have a very colorful past. And that colorful past actually demonstrates the effective work, the miraculous, life-changing nature of the hope that rests in the glory of Jesus and Jesus alone. And people get to see that. Our families get to see that. But sometimes it requires intentionality. We have this, man, we have this huge opportunity to actually reveal to our family that, hey, who I am now versus who I was before is two different people. Two different people. And not to the glory of me, but to the glory of God. He has done something in me. 1 Peter 3.14, we reference it frequently, but it's, it's this same idea. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect or humility. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, than it should be, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. It basically says, look, if we are living out this change and people get to see it and they ask us what is going on, we get to speak. 
we get to speak. We do it with humility. We do it with gentleness. We do it with respect. We do it with words seasoned with salt. We do it with wisdom. Make the best use of time. We do it with an understanding that it's necessary. It may be hard, but we do it. Because our families, if they do not know Christ, they need him and him alone. And we are set up, we are capable to share it. So this passage does point us to the idea that that faith is the avenue by which God's grace is on display because he looked at them, he marveled at the fact that they had so much unbelief or they had so much lack of faith. But at the same time, it's a great like directive to us that yes, uh, we go to those hard places knowing that they're going to be hard, but we go anyway. We go anyway. We speak anyway. We live out the change that is in us anyway with the hope and with the asking that God will do something great with it. And so I think that's kind of the, the long-term idea of what do we do with this passage. I think the immediate of what we do with this passage is we think for a moment about our home, like where we came from. Almost everybody sitting in here, you're, you're grown people for the most part, so you came from somewhere. And it's very likely, knowing the makeup of this church, this church family, you didn't come from here. You came from somewhere else. So think about where you came from. And then think about the people from where you came from. And then ask, who of those people need Jesus now? Like where I came from, who of those people that I still have a relationship with, I still have access to, I might be able to gain authority with, who of those people need Jesus? I would say start, start with the immediate. Mother and father, if they're still alive, do they need Jesus? And if the answer is yes, man, you write them down, you start praying for them every single day, and you pray that the next time you see them, you get to share what Christ has done in your life that he could do in theirs. My siblings, you got siblings? Do they need Jesus? Do they have Jesus? If they don't, add them to the list. Maybe, it, maybe it's just the people that you hung around in high school with that you're still in contact with. Like, I, I lost those connections, to be honest, at some point. Like, I, I hardly speak to anybody that I ran around in high school with. But maybe you do. Who needs Jesus? Whose name do you need to write down and just begin to, like, diligently, directedly, intentionally seek God's glory on their behalf for? And then when you go home, you make the best use of your time, you make the best use of your words, and you've prayed for them before you ever went that God may do something great with the story that's in you for his glory and their good. Who are those names? So in just a minute, we're going we're gonna to sing, I think, one more song. Yep, we got time. We can do it. We're going to sing one more song, and then we'll have a benediction. But, but maybe for that first part of that song, maybe you just sit and, and you just kind of ask, God, who are these people? When we talk about the three names that we talk about, like the people that are close to you but far from Jesus, write them down, pray for them, figure out how you can get involved in their story and they can get involved in yours and you get to share God, the gospel with them and that Christ will reign in their life. Yes, maybe you need to add a few more people to that list. Family. It's okay to have 26 names on your list. It's all right. If you've got 26 people around, around you that don't know Jesus, man, you are in a prime time spot to share the gospel. Good for you. Take advantage of it. Pray for them diligently. Seek God on their behalf. So maybe just sit and ask God who that is. Begin to pray for them today, and then we'll worship and close out with a benediction, and we'll be gone for the day. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you for uh, even a bit of caution that these relationships with people that are close to us, and, and we're close to them, they know us best. We know them best. God, sharing the hope of, and the glory of Jesus and only Jesus with them may be difficult, but it's entirely necessary. 
God, I thank you that your heart's desire is to see that all men and women and children have repeated opportunities to hear and respond to your gospel. And thank you for inviting us into that mission. God, I pray that we would see the gravity and the weight of the hope that you offer and see the necessity of it to the point that it moves us uh, to pray for those who don't know you, especially those uh, in our families and back home. And God, I pray that you would use us as a church family to go to those places, to go to those people and share the consistency of what you've done in our life and that you'll use that to allow them to hear of you, to know you, to call on you as Savior. I thank you that the mission is bigger uh, than us. It's bigger than our old self. Um, and God, the kingdom uh, can grow as a result of what you've done in us. God, we love you. Uh, we thank you. And it's in your son's name we pray. So when you're ready, you can stand and worship. But if you need to sit and just pray and seek God's uh, name on behalf of those people um, and just pray for them by name, you do that. If you can't stand up at all, that's fine. Um, but when you're ready, you can stand and worship.